Kia ora tato. Um, so today I want to tell uh, the story of an industrial dispute uh, between the Meat Workers Union and its members and AFCO, one of the largest meat companies in the country and a subsidiary of the agribusiness giant, the Tallies Group. Today's talk, however, zeroes in on one town to detail the impacts of the dispute on a local group of workers and the efforts by workers at a local level. So I'm going to give a broad overview of um, the key events and developments and some of the, the brief history of the union and the company and play clips from interviews I did um, with workers in the town of Wairoa. So this is part of a larger oral history project about the dispute um, and part of another pro larger project on the history of freezing workers. And I'd like to first acknowledge uh, Manatu Tanga, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, uh, for the funding provided to complete this project as part of its oral history grants. Um, and also for inviting me to speak today. Um, and I'd like to thank those who agreed to be interviewed um, by me and invited me into their homes in Wairoa and shared aspects of their lives. So um, this story really hit the headlines in February 2012. Uh, two years after the tallies took over AFCO, um, the company issued lockout notices to 700 of its employees across the country. The gates were locked. Um, the workers would be without work, without pay, indefinitely. And the lockout would go on to last 90 days. In a press release immediately following the lockout, um, the AFCO chief, chief executive, Hamish Simpson, released a press release. He said, this is a struggle over management control. The ma management is seeking to draw a line on union influence in the workplace. And since then, the dispute has evolved into perhaps one of the most bitter and protracted industrial disputes in New Zealand's recent history, and one that is by no means resolved. So I want to tell the story today of workers in Wairoa who face the brunt of this, their campaign to maintain their union in the workplace, and the community mobilization behind it. And I'd like to end by connecting the story of a small town to a larger story of political change and precarious work. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar with Wairoa, um, it's a small town in Hawke's Bay, halfway between Gisborne and Napier, and it has a population of about 4,000. On the south side of the Wairoa River, which cuts through the town, is a line of shops dotted along a uh, marine um, parade, and on the north bank, a large rugby field and the AFCO meatworks. The modern history of the town is tied to that of the meatworks. The large factory, the main employer, dictates the rhythms of the town. It's a seasonal industry. Money flushes in during the season and drains out as families rely on savings to get them through the off-season. And developments in the plant have a big impact on the whole town. In May 2012, a journalist writing for the Hawke's Bay Today newspaper reported that the town was in serious decline, quote, as residents leave because of a loss of faith in job security with the town's biggest employer, Tally's AFCO. So to in, order, in order to understand why this dispute is important and why there, are so, uh, there was such a staunch pushback against the attempt to draw the line on union influence in the workplace, we need to understand uh, the community at Wairoa, what employment in the industry meant to workers, especially in the years before the tallies took over. Workers describe a family atmosphere in the Fenonatanga in the works, and the workplace is a central site of the community, um, and one in which the union and union culture played a central role. In the meat industry, as we will see, unions have never been simply bargaining agents, but rather the institutional expression of a broader culture of solidarity. 
So to get at this, I spent a week in Wairoa interviewing workers um, about the dispute. I interviewed uh, Hilton Rohi. I interviewed um, Eric Mischewski, a union organizer in Hawke's Bay, who organizes across the region. I interviewed uh, Daphne Farihinger and Lindsay Crawford, who work together at, at AFCO. And I interviewed Pete Amator, who's a meat worker and a union delegate at AFCO. So in today's talk, I'm just going to focus um, largely on the, on the last two interviews. Um, and we'll start with Pete, who will introduce himself. Hello, everybody. I'm, I'm Peter Amato. I was born and bred here in War. Um, it's been, this would have been my 20th season here at uh, FCO. But I uh, grew up in FCO, uh, in, in Warham my, my whole life. Yep, I've been away and been schooled out of town and all that. But uh, you go where your heart is, and home for me, uh, and my heart is here in Warham. So back home is where I am here. I asked Pete to describe what the town was like when he was growing up. Massive town. It was a, it was a big, big town. It was like the uh, uh, hub of life. You couldn't walk around. There. And, and the meat plant was, was part of the like, monetary side, was bringing money in. But there wasn't only just that. You had your railways, you had all these other businesses were booming hmm. because, of, yeah, because of everything. Yeah. But now that's cut short with all the, um, the crap that we have to put up with now. Hmm. Yeah. Daphne Farihinga was born and raised in Wairoa. Her father was a meat worker and signed her up to, to the works in 1994, where she has been ever since. Daphne works, works alongside her partner, Lancy Crawford, who also spent much of his childhood in Wairoa. When I asked them to describe the town when they were growing up, this is what they told me. I loved it. You know, we had the river. My dad's a freezing worker. He's been, well, he's been there for like 30 years. Mm. And he's still there now, myself and my brother. Um, it was just a, it's just a beautiful place to live. You know, it's easy, easy going. The people are awesome. Our town is awesome, and yeah. I just have no desire to be anywhere else but here. Mm. I think there's a misconception about what war was mm. in the media. Like, no, we've always been portrayed as a, a gang town, but. It's not until you actually live here you realise that that part of this town is it doesn't make this town. Mm. Yeah, but um, yeah, I lived here till I was like say thirteen from the age of four, and that was brilliant. It was brilliant. I had a brilliant childhood. Once again, the meatworks was a central part of this, and part of the town and of the wider community. And I asked Daphne to describe the workplace culture when she first started. I was happy. Everyone was happy. Everyone got on. Like, at our breaks, we'd play cards. Mm. You know, people would smoke and cook big feeds, but the environment was happy. You were just, you know, like I said, go to go do your job, have your breaks. Everyone was smiling, joking, laughing. Everybody was one. And it was just a really neat place and environment to be in at that time go home, have a few beers with your mates, try and leave work at home, oh, at work, and um, yeah. But I always loved to get up and go to work because you'd go to work, see all your friends, see your family, get the job done, and go home. Pete Amator didn't plan on being a meat worker. He left home after school and went straight to Auckland to study fine arts. After finishing art school, he stayed in Auckland for a while working as a bartender was doing well for himself, making decent money, but he was drawn back home to Wairua. But um, there's no place like home, and that's why I came back home. Hmm. And when did you come home? How old were you? 
Oh, I might have been, oh, I was like about 24 when I came back. Yeah. And, um, yeah, came back and, and was happier. Auckland was good, but um, you can't beat home, eh, you know. So I came home and this is where I wanted to settle. And part of, part of that was, well, coming in a meat worker too, was the, <clears throat> it wasn't a plan. I didn't actually plan to go, go but I, I, I thought I'd do it for a year and the people and the family system that we had back then was awesome. What do you mean? <clears throat> there was a family structure. When, you actually, when I first started, I had maybe seven uncles in the room that I was in, you see? And when I first came, went in there, and it's quite, it's quite intimidating because I'm in a beef slot. So it's quite intimidating. You get these big animal. One gets out, it'll kill you. you know, that sort of thing. It's, it, it's, uh, it's quite an intimidating if, if you're new to the business. But, but the people were that awesome. It just wasn't funny. The family, the, the whakawhanungatanga, I would say, was just uh, welcoming. You know, like, oh, come here, boy. Come sit here and have a feed with us. Or grab a coffee and come over here. It was just so welcoming, eh? So... You actually, I actually made a lot of good friends and a lot, and, and got to know a lot of my family members a lot, a lot of it better. Normally, I would just know them as uncle <clears throat> in passing, but now I got actually got to know them, and, and was actually looked after quite well when I first got there. Yeah. But everybody was. That's why you became a meat worker. That's why you didn't mind being a meat worker. There's a family environment that nobody hears about, and it's really it's welcoming. <coughs> and I and I think. For myself and some of my mates, we, we still pass that on to the next generation of, of meat workers. We don't want them to come in and, and be intimidated by nothing. So for much of the 20th century, uh, meat workers in New Zealand occupied an important place within the New Zealand economy and a powerful position within the country's trade union movement. Before the economic restructuring of the 80s and 90s, a meatworks was a familiar landmark in many areas of the country, providing employment for entire communities and generations of families. Meatworkers also gained a reputation for union militancy. In a workplace dominated by speed, regimentation and monotony, workers sustained a strong workplace and union culture. They frequently challenged the prerogatives of employers and asserted their own control and aut autonomy on the job. It was a seasonal job and unions fought hard for a long time for job security um, and seniority rights. In the 1970s and 80s, as inflation ate into wages and the deregulation of the industry introduced new pressures, strike action increased markedly. Companies' efforts to maintain profits by changing the organisation of work, introducing new technologies and workplace discipline, and resisting concessions at the bargaining table ran up sharply against uh, meat workers' assertions of autonomy and a strong and militant union culture. It was a contest that defined uh, many of the more militant blue-collar workplaces during the recessionary 1970s, a contest over who would shoulder the burden of an economic crisis. It, between 1986 and 1990, however, the meat freezing industry workforce was cut in half, um, following the major restructuring of the industry. And for those who retained their jobs, companies chipped away at working conditions, pay and jobs, and asserted a greater level of control over the workplace while government legislation severely curtailed the ability of meat workers' unions to maintain a position of strength within the industry. And as a result, real wages for meat workers have declined since the 1990s. So despite the closures and the restructuring in the 80s and 90s, meat workers and their unions have adapted and survived, though have never returned to a position of strength once held. As one scholar has written, 
After two decades of restructuring and employment relations change, unions can be seen as the survivors and companies as the winners. The Labour Alliance government in 2000 restored some of the provisions um, eliminated in the 1990s, and a return to good faith collective bargaining under the Employment Relations Amendment Act has had a positive result for the union. The presence of the union in non-union sites has recovered, and collective bargaining has remained in place ever since. For union officials, the period since 2000 has been one of relative stability. Industrial disputes within the industry have declined markedly, and some of those workers who entered in the 1990s, such as Peter, Daphne, and Lonsi, had never actually lived through a strike. Collective bargaining itself had become routine and uncontroversial. Each party would meet at a hotel, present their respective cases with graphs and reports and agree on minor changes, largely of clarification, no major concessions by the company and no ma major clawbacks for the union. For workers at AFCO plants, however, things started to change after 2010, and this was triggered by a change in ownership. In 2001, the Tallies Group bought a 10% stake in AFCO, uh, increased that to a controlling stake in 2006, and acquired the remainder in 2010. Some commentators were enthusiastic about their arrival in the meat industry. Alan Barber, an agricultural journalist, wrote that AFCO under Tally's direction is the most determined to challenge the status quo and test the boundaries. But for union organizer Roger Middlemass, their arrival was, quote, like a cold front arriving. Indeed, the Tallies had gained something of a reputation for anti-unionism. In a 1994 employment court ruling, the judge described the company's hostility towards the union and the disregard uh, for the court's rulings. Uh, the judge wrote, Mr. Talley has made no secret of his feelings towards the union. It is a deep-seated animosity, the source of which is now untraceable. He set out through his share of the control of management to punish the plaintiff union, and he set out to do so by injuring it financially. In 2007, after becoming the majority shareholder of Open Country Dairy, Tallies had effectively locked out and deunionized its plants in Hamilton. And since 2010, the Meat Workers Union has fought a number of cases in the employment court over union access to AFCO sites, breach of contract, and refusal to recognize elected officials. One witness before the Employment Authority claimed that the company considered penalties of breach of contract as, quote, part of the cost of implementing its strategy of deunionizing the workplace and con consider them to be a general business expense. In its submission to the 2014 health and safety legislation, the company made its position clear. Quote, the glory days are over for most unions. It is time to start unwinding some of the excessive power that New Zealand unions hold, rather than attempting to strengthen them under, under the disguise of health and safety legislation. So there was something uh, perhaps tragically inevitable or deeply rooted in the disputes after 2010. David Fisher of the New Zealand Herald described the dispute as, as spilling over into an all-out war. No quarter is given, he wrote, between a company owned by New Zealand's richest families and one of the country's oldest and historically powerful unions. But Fisher's article presents the dispute as a battle between equals, which it certainly was not. And for workers in Wairua, the change was felt in the workplace immediately. There's a difference from then to now, and there was basically, as soon as they bought the place, <clears throat> was they didn't want you to, uh, they just didn't, they wanted to do away with their family structure. You're talking about the 
Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about Tally's, yes. Oh, well, I'm talking about the owners, the new owners. When the yeah. new ownership came about, and we thought, well, that's all right, you know, we can still do our job, we can still keep what we have. And then, no, we were actually getting, um, that's when it, it was niggly at first. They said, no, we're going to lay these fellas off. We're going to bring these fellas on, and these fellas had no skills at all. And, and, and like I said, I said, with our family structure being so strong, it wasn't right. You know, you're laying off fellas who've been there for about seven years, mm. eight years, just so that you can say, no, we want to bring these fellas off and give it to those fellas. Mm. And they were just doing it of impunity without even caring. And that's when it was like some of the lights started going, hey, the same right, you know, the same right. <clears throat> but they didn't care. For workers in Wairua, um, the major change also came in 2010 when they faced the first of three lockouts. In May of that year, AFCO management threatened workers with a seasonal closure unless they were prepared to work harder for no more money or at least not being paid overtime. The company bypassed the union, sending letters to all individual workers who were required to respond in person um, in private meetings with company individuals. The company also began offering individual employment agreements to workers, effectively asking them to sever ties with the union. Workers rejected both the individual agreements and the offer, and the next day the works was closed for the season. The 2010 wasn't really a lockout, they just didn't bring us back. They, they said, oh, it was kind of like a lockout. What they said was they didn't have any stock or availability of stock, but they did, because they were sending it to all the other plants. Mm. For process, what they were trying to do was make us all sign their new individual agreement. <clears throat> and they even brought that up, but they brought that up when we went back. They said, oh, well, we don't have any union ones, but if you sign these individual agreements, we can start. And none of us signed them. We just went, no. But, but all the other plants, we had full capacity, and you had all the stock, and there's no, and you got a, one of the major plants not working. Mm. I think they made the mistake of starting, trying to do their fight here at the big one. You know, we... We were all very much family and, and all that. And to an extent, we still are, I suppose. But, <clears throat> yeah. It was all bad. Uh, yeah, 2010, they just didn't hire us back. They just, made, they just dragged the off-season off the longest it's ever been, mm. like maybe five months. So they've done it tw two years in a row. Yeah. So while the 2010 lockout was specific to Wairoa, at the end of February 2012, the company issued lockout notices to meet works at plants across the country, from Moriwa in Northland to Horatu in Hamilton to Rangiuru in Bay of Plenty, uh, Inlay in Palmerston North and Wairoa. The lockout notice targeted specific workers, 762 out of 1,200 union members. And the aim uh, was to keep the plants running while pressuring the majority of union members to sign individual agreements. Um, but the remaining workers, um, union members, who were not locked out, voted to strike and support. And just to put this in perspective, the lockout is historically rare in New Zealand, and its increase has run concurrently with the growth of employer power. So from the 1970s to the um, late 80s, the lockout comprised of between 0 and 2 to 3% of disputes, increasing to 10% in the 90s during the era of the Employment Contracts Act before settling to about 5% in the 2000s. Uh, Pete, Pete was not one of those locked out, um, but his decision to strike and support was an easy one. For Amator, the impact on his own whānau and his own whānau union history was key to his, to his decision to vote to strike. On a personal, personal level, 
two of my cousins and my family is really uh, very close family mm. were locked out. I wasn't locked out. I was still working. <clears throat> so when they said we'll strike, it was an easy thing for me to do because I love my cousins and I'll stand by them. Mm. You know what I mean? So it was a pretty easy decision. As is this last decision. Well, um, the decision to go on strike, and I'll be honest, a lot of people were scared. And it's the first time that we'd actually been through a strike and, I was, and, I would, and I'd never seen one before in my life too. But a lot of people were scared. Now when you're scared and all that, you have to look to your leaders. And if they, you know, they have to show you the strength and conviction that they need to get through it. Mm. <clears throat> and in 2012, like just being a pup myself, I thought, well, I'm going to stand by my cousin. And that gave me strength within myself to know that what I was doing was right. And all the, other, all the other events leading up to it, like all my best mates, we'll just fire them. We'll bring them, then we'll just fire them whenever we would, you know what I mean? Um, so, so the decision to go on strike for myself personally was, a, was quite easy because it's either stand up, stand up and fight it, or you're going to lie down and get given, what's going to get given, mate? And that's basically what's happening now. Mm. And you, would, you wouldn't get nothing. You know, uh, my grandfather was a meat worker and a unionist too. And he was in the room that I'm in. Mm. <clears throat> and they always talk about him and being a unionist. So. At Wairau? Yep. yep. And he, he, he's, um, who, what kind of grandson would I be? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and I love my grandfather. I'm a very family-oriented person. I love my grandfather. So he fought hard for me to have what i got now. Who am I to drop what he fought for me? And, and um, if I drop the ball here, these next lot of uh, meat workers are going to lose out. Uh, so this sense of responsibility and obligation to both the past and present, sorry, past and future of meat worker unionism was common. Meat worker Justin Kaimoana, interviewed on Māori television, said this um, echoed Peter's words. He said, we didn't make this stand just for us for now. We made it for our fathers and our grandfathers who stood in the union back in the heyday of meat workers unions and for the future, for our kids who decide to make, who want to make a career out of being a meat worker. So the ability of these workers to hold out for three to five month periods without work required massive organizing, the establishment of resource centers and connecting with each other to maintain morale. Um, for many I interviewed, the, this was the highlight of the lockout and the supporting strike. Um, it was the protest at the bridge and the creation of the resource center, um, which came there's a combined effort from the union, workers, um, outside support, and also from the iwi, Ngāti Kahanunu. Daphne Farihinger and Lonzi Crawford played a big role in this, and they describe it. Made our signs and would go and stand on the bridge and, you know, protest. But it was good because everyone that was in the union that was locked out all come together. Mm. And that was, that's what it was about, well, coming together, supporting yeah. each other. Um, yeah, just trying to keep each other strong. <clears throat> there was some that, yeah, they wouldn't come down. They did, were too proud to ask for help. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was horrible. It was, it was quite sad for those ones. Mm. But, um, yeah, but, I, I just couldn't believe, you know, we had um, people, well, we have people who are hunters, hunter-gatherers yeah. and all of that. So we'd all be down there and, doing our protest thing and on the bridge, you know, took for your support and that sort of stuff. And behind the scenes, there'll be people down in the resource centre cooking up lunch. And it's a bit of shared lunch. Mm. 
and we'd all come and bring little cakes yeah. and, and, and bread and stuff like that and stuff we'd made and stuff that was given to us and we'd go down there and just put it on the table and then everybody would help themselves to it was it was um it it was really tribal. It was like that was our marae. We go down yeah. there, we cook up a feed for everybody. Yeah. When everybody's finished with their mahi, they come back down and have a kai and go back and do their mahi again. It was it was yeah. It really gave me a sense of of, of belonging to yeah, the union. Yeah. It, it made it me feel me. unified in our action. It, it was it was an amazing feeling. And because we were all like regimented in our work, you know, would be a set time, eight o'clock, yep. meet down there, prepare koi, go and protest, come together, um, talk about, you know, anything, family or if anyone had problems and you know, for me, going there to 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 that resource center with the union family was the best thing ever. Because mm. once I'd come off that bridge, come home, I'd come home and cry. But I never ever showed that to my um union union mm. family because I didn't want them to see me break because I was one of those yeah. people that they come to talk to, that they sort of looked upon or for um advice. A shoulder. Hugs, cuddles, whatever I could offer. I would, but yeah, as soon as I got down from that bridge and come home, that's when I cried. Um, for Peter too, uh, the resource centre lifted morale, especially when it came to harder periods around Christmas. But, um, no, I, I wouldn't even say it was miserable. Like I said, there were, we were, um, our morale was really high. We knew what we were doing prior to things. Uh, I think the only hard time I had, really, was around Christmas, and I couldn't give my own kids Christmas presents. That would be the hardest time for myself. I, I can't talk for the family, I can only talk for myself. Mm. But that would have been the hardest part for me, was Christmas time. And what, did the resource centre do anything for Christmas? Oh man, the resource centre was massive. That was basically the only Christmas the kids had. Um, I was lucky to get a, a one little job and it was enough to get all the kids a bike each, you know what I mean? Just before Christmas. But it was uh, still a hard time, you know, because um, we had Christmas at the resource centre, and that was me, you know, we had the Labour MPs come down, we had Jacinda Ardoon bring our presents down and, and give out these gifts to the kids. We had, Christmas was for the kids, and we did it well. And it didn't get, didn't get a lot of uh, media coverage, but that was all right, because it was not about the media, it was about these kids. <clears throat> yeah, and how they should be feeling. Mm. Um, they should be feeling special because their parents have been having doing it hard, and and it'd be hard for these kids to go to school saying, "Oh, we can't do that because we're broke." Mm. My kids were got used to saying, "No, oh, we can't do that tunnel. We're broke." And uh, it's a hard thing to listen to, especially around Christmas. That's why I had a hard time. But still, the morale was high. Um, the morale was real high. If you did it, if you were down in the dumps and we heard about it, some of us would go to their, their place and see how they were going there, you know what I mean? Yeah. If people didn't come and figure, pick up their food parcels, some of and we didn't we heard about it, we'd pick up their food parcels and take it to them. Yeah. Just those little things. When you got nothing, when you got absolutely nothing, these little things pick you up and they give you that little boost that you need. 
So the dispute ended following the intervention of EWI leaders, the Council of Trade Unions, international unions, and a campaign on the part of the union um, and call, called Jobs That Count, which stressed the importance of job security, seniority, and the hardships caused um, by the lockout on families. At the same time, the union um, took action in the courts, testing the legality of the lockout. At the end of the lockout, Graham Cook, the president of the union, wrote a letter to all members and supporters um, and wrote, quote, never before had the tallies yielded to a union. The family has boasted on a number of times that they don't have unions in the fishing, shellfish, frozen food, ice cream and dairy industry. So it was a partial win for the union. A collective agreement was signed and workers went back to work. But the settlement of the lockout did not end the issues between the union and the company. Disputes continued at workplaces across the country, again largely over access. And in 2015, following the expiry of the collective agreement, uh, the company again offered uh, individual employment agreements when workers returned for the season. This time they were being signed across the country and the union was losing members fast. The tallies campaign seemed to be working. And in 2015, the union position changed as well. It told its members to sign individual employment agreements and go back to work to maintain a union presence and culture at work while the union itself um, took, on, took on the individual employment agreements in the court. The argument was that the union could no longer afford a national lockout like that in 2012 while also fighting in the courts. Um, and it claimed that such a strategy would play right, in the, right into the hands of the company, who they claimed was clearly attempting to drain the union of its funds. At Wairoa, however, 200 workers refused to sign the agreements and rejected the advice of the union. They were locked out again. This time, for the third time in a row, they were locked out for five months. And the 2015 lockout also occurred against the backdrop of the National Government's Employment Relations Amendment Act being passed, allowing employers to walk away from collective bargaining. Dr. Stephen Bloomfield from Victoria University claimed that the new legislation was clearly aimed at reducing the influence of unions and collective bargaining and increasing the vulnerability of individual workers by removing the protection and support that the union provides. For union organiser Eric Mashevsky, this was a bill designed for the tallies. Okay, well, to me, it was the tallies bill, purely and simply. Um, I, I could see no other reason for the government wanting to put this up. I didn't hear anything credible in the media or anywhere um, that um, th this was needed. And the difference being really is that under the, uh, the Employment Relations Act, before this amendment came in, there was a duty to conclude collective, collective bargaining. So even if you didn't agree, you had to conclude in some way, uh, which also could have involved arbitration or, or mediation to get a final result. But this particular um, bill um, was really aimed at companies being able to walk away from negotiations. And so the stand took on a bigger meaning for meat workers at Wairoa. A local lockout became a battleground over employment law and what they saw as a potentially precedent-setting case. Pete Amator reflected on the wider significance of the 2015 lockout. For myself and a lot of my friends, when I've talked to them, I say we need to knock that other bill on the year too. Because if, if we're the first one to be tipped over by it, we're not going to be the only ones who are going to be shafted by it. Mm. 
it's going to be all the other unions are going to be uh, be falling suit to it. Yeah. Not only that too, then you'd have the whole meat industry will fall, follow suit. <clears throat> so we'd be seen a present. And that's why we were trying to say, no, nah, we're not going to do it. And we forced our own union to come to the party. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, don't feel bad about yourself because you're doing something morally right. It's not, so, it's not so much about the money and it's never been about money for me. It's about let's do something that's right. Let's do something, uh, especially at that point in time when I knew that the law had changed. Let's do something right for everybody, not just ourselves. Yeah. We knew, yes, we were getting affected about it, but what about everybody else? <coughs> what about the, the nurses? For me, it was about the nurses. I didn't realise it was going to be the doctors. But I thought, of, you know, healthcare, uh, mental healthcare, um, bus drivers, everybody else after us is going to be affected if we don't make the stand. Mm. And, it was, and I was lucky to be in that position where I was actually there and beating these drums and, and everybody got it. Yes, not as bad as. Um, let's do the selfless act and take it on. Mm. And that's what we did, yeah. So after five months, the employment court ruled that the lockout was unlawful. Um, white oil workers went back to work um, and were put on the night shift as punishment. The company appealed the decision from the employment court and that pretty much brought the events up to date when I conducted the interviews. I had initially intended to conduct interviews about the 2012 lockout, but the dispute had continued right up until the present. Um, and as I drove home from Waido after doing the interviews, I stopped to get gas, and this was the cover of the local paper. Uh, this, after several appeals by the company, the dispute had gone all the way to the Supreme Court, and meat workers had won. They were vindicated and the company was ordered to pay for lost wages in the lockout. Um, so there's a lot more to the story uh, than I could hope to cover in this talk. But the dispute, which has included lockouts, strikes and battles in the courts, has had a major impact on small towns across the country that rely on local meatworks for employment. The union's director of organising, Darian Fenton, has said that the tallies are, quote, a company at war with its workforce. While Graham Cook, the union's president, claims that he has never seen such, quote, vicious retribution against the Meat Workers Union, its members, its whānau, and its communities. Elsewhere, Cook has written that the Tallies Group adhere to, to US-style bust union-busting manuals with the singular determination reminiscent of a street fighter looking for the final boot in the teeth. So this has been a nationwide uh, campaign, but Wairoa has been hit the hardest. And the town has also been the site of the most staunch and effective resistance against the company's anti-union agenda. But nor has it been a clear-cut win for workers. Wairoa workers, while maintaining their union, now work under considerably worse conditions. The town is somewhat divided, and financially it's been incredibly difficult for many. So despite the win in the courts and the unexpected reprieve from a change of government, union members still fa face a hostile anti-union environment and a difficult future. And workers in Wairoa, three years later, still wait for unpaid wages. So the story is not over for these meat workers at Tally's own plants, um, but for those who have taken part in this campaign, there are no regrets. No, I genuinely stand by what I've done. You know, I can't, I would never change anything. I love being a unionist. I love all my mates that have been with me and done this with me. Um, if we don't make the stand, who makes the stand? You know what I mean? Uh, who's going to draw that line in the in the dirt? Because, and I'm being honest again, once, if we did fail, if we did um, get 
get shafted off. We, uh, I, I really didn't want to tap into the doctors, the teachers, the nurses, the the bus drivers, the bus drivers, uh, all of them. I, I, um, if that if that bill had made it past us, then everybody's in the firing and I can't have that. Mm. Yeah. And I'll leave the last words to Daphne Farihinger, who told me this. If this ever happens again, I'd be ready. And I'd do it again. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Um... Kia ora, Ross. Thank you very much for your talk. You're not just a brilliant historian, but also a good photographer. Um, do you intend to do anything with those photos? And can you talk more about how you captured them? I don't really know. Um, <laughs> it's a tough thing because I want to write about this, but the, the um, writing it on paper doesn't really capture the, the voices of the oral interviews. So that's something I still need to think about. Oh, kia ora, Ross, Peter Franks. Congratulations on a very fine piece of work. I think it's a real eye-opener in, in, in many senses, and it's a brilliant example of how trade unionism actually works um, from the bottom um, rather than just from the top. And actually, for it to work together, it's got to work at all levels, and I think the meat workers showed that. Um, but you talked about the cost um, to both the community and the town and the workforce of those disputes at Wairoa. Were you ever able to um, talk to people um, in Wairoa who didn't uh, support the strike or who walked, who worked through the strike? Did you was was that a possibility for your project? It was something I wanted to do, but I wouldn't even know how to begin um, approaching people. Um, it's obviously a very sensitive issue in the town, so I kind of approached people who had already um, spoken to the media or spoken to uh, John Campbell, for example, or on Māori TV. But people who um, people who went back to work didn't really feature. No. Kia ora, Ross. Thank you very much. Um, I'd actually thought Tully's were Australian. Could you say something about the family? I mean, I had not the sense until you were talking of quite the character that they have in New Zealand contemporary life. Um, so they've been in New Zealand since the 1930s um, and started a fishing, fishing industry in uh, Motueka. Um, and where they came from before that... Yugoslavia, yeah, that's right. And initially big supporters of the Labour Party in the 1930s. Ross, I was um, impressed with that countercultural look of that Meat Workers Union organiser, the guy with the tats, and mm. clearly he'd been on the chain. Can you tell us a bit more about his background? And also there's the picture of one of the, I'm, I'm assuming one of the union people in, on uh, the wall behind him. Do you know who that is? Uh, that's Bill Anderson. Okay. Um, Sabelle Locke's writing a biography of Bill Anderson. So, yeah, he pinned that on his wall. He's obviously a, um, a fan of Bill. Uh, but Eric, yeah, worked in the... Um, he works in Palmerston North in the 70s and 80s and became an organiser in Napier in the late 1980s, and he's been there ever since. 